If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. first two decades of the 19th century that we begin to see a clear American and a clear Canadian identity. That was Misha Glennie discussing the history of America. He clearly must have been very charismatic. People talk about these deep-set eyes, these very piercing brown eyes, and he would have been an amazing friend to have. He could also be a dreadful enemy to have, too. And that was Lyndall Roper describing Martin Luther. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of May 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with the journalist Misha Glennie. He is the presenter of the long-running BBC Radio 4 strand, The Invention Of, which has so far explored the histories of a number of countries, among them France, Brazil and Spain. For the latest series, Misha has turned his attention to the United States, at what feels like a pivotal moment in its history. He spoke to our publisher, Dave Musgrove. We're talking about the invention of America, which is obviously a very big topic. There's lots of things we could talk about. Um, Perhaps we could just go back to the start. Um, If you could maybe just remind us um, how how the nation kicked off, how it began uh, back in the 18th century. Well, it began, of course, with the 13 colonies, divided though they were, Uh, culturally and economically, socially and politically, coming together to kick out the British in the Revolutionary War. And um, what is interesting about the origins of the United States in particular is how initially they had no intention or no particular desire, no motivation to club together and become a single state. In fact, after the British were thrown out in the Revolutionary War, um, it was almost a decade before they managed to establish some sort of constitutional relationship amongst themselves. And during that time, they had extremely fractious relationships and were often on the verge of going to war uh, with each other. Um, At the same time, they were extremely vulnerable, not merely because of Britain's initial intention of getting the colonies back by picking them off one by one against each other, but there was also a very significant French presence in the region and a very significant Spanish presence as well. So in some respects, uh, it's not just their ability to defeat the British in the Revolutionary War, which is so extraordinary, it is their ability to come together despite a lot of mutual domestic internal suspicion and actually come up with 
a constitution, which of course still holds sway today. That's that's quite a, a topical subject, actually, isn't it? Because the Declaration of Independence that's just been um, found that we're talking about uh, in the last day or so in in Chichester in uh, in the UK is um, is supposed to lean into that discussion about the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. Um, so uh, so so that was an important moment, I presume, in in the development of the story. Oh, it's an inc- incredibly important moment. What's what's really important is is the uh the uh, in the discussions in independence hall which lead to the to the formulation of the constitution in 1783 these are really uh over a sort of roughly two month period this is really the critical period because they um have to deal with the issue of how much power should be retained by individual states and how much power should be given to a federal government. And initially, there were very few supporters of the idea of a federal government, partly because you were seeing the emergence of very different cultures within the uh, 13 uh, new states, and in particular, um, the issue of slavery which uh, slavery was essentially the backbone of the economy of the southern states, uh, but was becoming ever more frowned upon in the northern states. The issue of slavery was at the very heart heart of the discussion about to what extent a federal government could exercise power over the uh, the federal constituencies, i.e. the states. Okay. Did you get a sense from uh, from uh, creating this program as to when uh, the people who lived in those states began to see themselves as Americans rather than inhabitants of the independent, the, the separate states? Well, it it you know it happened over I would say a generation or so because uh, many of the people who were responsible for writing the Constitution of the United States had either been born um, in England or in Scotland, Ireland, or had spent extensive periods in uh, Britain and elsewhere in Europe and considered themselves as coming essentially from the old world. And so this idea that they suddenly became Americans, of course, does not hold uh, water. The Revolutionary War was, of course, Uh, very important in that. But I would say that the real um, upsurge of uh, decisive American patriotic sentiment was in the War of 1812, which here in the United Kingdom is a rather forgotten war. In the United States, it's remembered, uh, if rather erratically and unhistorically. Uh, In Canada, the 1812 war, which essentially defined the modern borders, certainly of eastern Canada, um, the 1812 war is seen as an extremely important marker in the development of a Canadian consciousness. So I would say that it's in the first two decades of the 19th century that we begin to see a clear American and a clear Canadian identity. And by that time, was it was it clear to everybody that the the idea of of the of the nation of the of the American nation was was a goer that it was going to you know going to stick around? Because presumably, back in the 1770s, 1780s, that wasn't entirely clear to everybody. 
No, in the 1780s. I mean, it's very interesting, again, about the Constitution and the Founding Fathers, uh, whereas for decades now, if not well over a century, um, the political discourse in the United States has looked back at the Founding Fathers as though it were a sort of font of uh, ultimate wisdom and that, that you can always read the clear intentions of the Founding Fathers by looking at the Constitution and one or two other documents like the Federalist Papers. But in fact, when they were writing the Constitutions, their general feeling of the Founding the founding Fathers, incidentally, the Founding Fathers are always, uh, uh, the, their, name, their name is always capitalized with two Fs uh, when written in the United States. Um, uh, the Founding Fathers uh, said they thought it would be it would be a miracle if the constitution lasts for ten years without um, you know a major collapse or a major revision. What they did was introduce the system of amendments, which enabled the constitution to adapt to ch changing political and economic circumstances, uh, which was uh, which was very very uh, useful. So. Um, it was seen initially as basically a sort of improvisation with a lot of difficult questions kicked into the uh, into the long grass. Uh, and then over the next hundred years or so, particularly up until 1861 and the outbreak of uh, civil war, it started to become solidified as uh, as the way it's seen now as as somehow a very uh, carefully thought out and brilliant codex uh, and uh, a political political statement about the future of the country. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned briefly the relationship between uh, the US and Canada and, uh, and the aftermath of the 1812 war. I wonder how far relations between uh, the USA and Canada and the USA and Mexico to the south have shaped the, the development of, of the nation. I mean, obviously, Mexico now is, is very topical in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the States, in, in the story of what's happening at the moment. So do, do you get a sense of how far the existence of those two nations on either side have, have helped to develop the, uh, the, the identity of the country in between? Yes, absolutely critical. Uh, I mean, Canada. The uh, for Canada, I think eighteen twelve is the most important, not the not the only important era. We'll come back to it maybe in the eighteen forties as well. But in eighteen twelve, remember a lot of. Uh, the Canadians um, uh, felt themselves still to be loyal subjects of Britain, and there were many thousands of inhabitants of the 13 colonies uh, 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 of the young United States, uh, indeed, because they'd started to adopt more, colon uh, more territories by then, who moved up to Canada uh, before and during the 1812 war because they considered themselves still to be loyal subjects of Britain and they could be if they were in Canada. So you began to see a very distinct consciousness between the two uh, countries uh, in the aftermath of the 1812 war. But really the key period in terms of establishing the identity and modern mythology of the United States is the period of the 1830s and the 1840s. And the pivotal geographic area for this is Texas. Texas, which um, along with Arizona, New Mexico, and California belonged to Mexico 
um, and Mexico had invited in settlers from the United States to develop agriculturally, uh, uh, develop economically the borderlands uh, of uh, Texas. And very soon those settlers started to develop a desire to take Texas away from Mexico and establish it as it was done for 10 years or so as the Lone Star State. Um, and eventually you see the United States and Mexico go to war over Texas. But what was really extraordinary about this war in the mid-1840s, and it's concluded finally with the the peace treaty in 1848, what's really incredible about this is not only does Mexico lose uh, Texas as it was, but a huge swathe of territory to the west of that that includes all the way over to California. And this is the period uh, of the ideology of manifest destiny, uh, a term coined by uh, an American journalist, which posits the idea that it is a God-given mission of the United States to go from coast to coast, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, uh, regardless of who or what might be uh, in the way. So it is this, uh, this period of the 1830s and 40s and also following the uh, the um, Mexican-American uh, War, you also had the final settlement of the so-called Oregon Territory, which is the huge swathe of land up in the northwest, and we get the final definition of the Canadian-US border. So this is the period which really establishes the United States as the dominant um, country in North America by dint of the extraordinary resources that that huge territory uh, will afford it. A year after the um, <clears throat> uh, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which finished, which concluded the Mexican-American War, a year after that, gold was discovered in California. And that is an extraordinary moment because it triggers a remarkable economic expansion, uh, which lasts for really for about in, until the First World War, which turns the United States into the major economic power of the world uh, in competition with Germany, Britain and France. Um, so th th that's that's fascinating, um, and obviously the, uh, the the availability of resources in this enormous area is is pivotal. I suppose that leads us nicely on to the role of uh, Native Americans in this story. What's what, what's their part in your story? How do they play into the into the invention of the United States? Well, uh, basically, they were in the way, as it were. So uh, first of all, there is a complex relationship uh, from the, the first settlement of the United States between the Native Americans and the incomers, the incomers from Europe. And there was a lot of wheeling and dealing, as we know, and a lot of uh, tactical alliances that were built up um, between the Native Americans and the major European powers, uh, the French, the British, and the uh, 
the Spanish. Um, but essentially, uh, because uh, many of the Native American tribes were Plains Indians, as they were called, and they were they moved over huge amounts of of territory, this was extremely inconvenient for those people who were trying to settle it in a more sedentary way and who wanted to bring things like railways. Um, uh, and other permanent settlements uh, into the area. And so essentially, they were bought off, uh, they were killed off, they were pitted against each other, and uh, um, eventually they were, if not enslaved, although in some areas uh, like uh, California under control of the Spanish and the Mexicans, they were actually uh, enslaved. Uh, their influence, which was essentially reduced in a series of very uh, vicious wars between the settlers and between those expanding American power to the West, and in particular tribes like the Comanche, who were the uh, most effective warriors and who were spread over large parts of, uh, of uh, Arizona, Wyoming, and, and Utah in the way of the expansion. So they had to go. And uh, uh, that, of course, has les left a, a, a legacy of tremendous bitterness amongst the uh, Native American uh, populations, which exists to this day. Okay, uh, we're, we're running short of time, and we we haven't even got to the twentieth century and and the, uh, and the and the world wars and and you know the the, the real rise of uh, American hegemony. But but one one more thought from me: uh, you, you did a road trip across America, I think, as part of the uh, of the uh, the production of the of your radio series. Um, did you get a sense when you were there as to how far history and historians are influencing the current debate in in American politics, and whether there are any particular aspects of of this story that are, are being played out in uh, in the current political discussions? Well, I'm not sure that um, American historians are having a huge influence over what's, uh, what's going on. Essentially, the Constitution is like so many uh, uh, myths associated with the creation of nation states. Uh, it can be used for pragmatic political purposes by anyone. So as soon as uh, Trump came into the White House, for example, the new president decided that his hero was Andrew Jackson, who was the uh, first great populist and uh, an anti-elitist he was perceived as uh, from the 1830s. Um, uh, uh, I'm not entirely sure that Donald Trump, to listen to what he's had to say about Andrew Jackson, really knew much about him at all. I think he saw him as a convenient poster boy for what he was trying to do uh, in coming into the uh, uh, in coming into the White House, but certainly what you will see is uh, constant references to the founding fathers, to different interpretations of uh, the vision of America as it as it was created, in particular during the 19th century. So it's one of those things that is used permanently as a, a weapon, a sword to beat the opponents with. Um, but within that, I suspect that a lot of the truth about the Founding Fathers, the Constitution, and how this country came into being gets lost along the way. That was Misha Glennie. 
Episode 2 of The Invention of the USA airs next Monday, the 8th of May, at 8pm on BBC Radio 4. And you can listen to the first episode in the series, as well as all the previous series, on BBC iPlayer Radio. Now, sticking with our BBC Radio theme, this week, BBC Radio 3 has been airing a series entitled Luther's Reformation Gang, which profiles the key personalities who surrounded the father of the Reformation. The series kicked off with an episode on Martin Luther himself, presented by his biographer, Professor Lyndall Roper of Oriel College, Oxford. I caught up with her a few days ago to find out more about Luther's story, and I began by asking her whether the Reformation could have taken place without him. I think they could have, because Luther certainly wasn't the first person or the only person to attack indulgences, but I don't think it would have been a Reformation in quite the same way. Because the amazing thing about Luther is that he has this extraordinary courage. Uh, he's able to face down the emperor and the entire assembled estates. And he has an ability to attack people in the Catholic Church, like Albrecht of Mainz, with uh, quite remarkable um, rhetoric and precision. So was he actually taking quite personal risks in, in what he was doing? I mean, could he, could he have ended up being killed? Absolutely, he could have. And the whole period just leading up to the Diet of Worms, you can see that he's caught. He both wants to be a martyr, and yet he's organising at the same time to make sure that he isn't. And the way that he avoided being a martyr is just amazing. And that's because he had a friend in the court of his ruler. That's the elector, Frederick the Wise. He had a friend, Georg Spalatin, who was the elector's secretary. And so there's this amazing correspondence between the two of them where he writes to Spalatin in Latin, but when he writes to the elector, he has to write in German. So we have this wonderful parallel correspondence. And because Spalatin has to summarise all the letters and translate the Latin for the elector, Spalatin is able to craft a political strategy that means that they can get Luther safe. How important do you think the 95 Theses themselves were for the Reformation? Was this really Luther's greatest contribution? No, absolutely not. It's really interesting when you read the 95 Theses. They are an amazing work, but it is very hard to see how they can have caused the uproar that they did. They're not a sort of narrative work. They are a set of theses, and some of them are really memorable and striking. But they're not a coherent, consistent argument over the whole of the 95 theses. And it took a long time for Luther to work out his theological position. It wasn't all there in the 95 theses. It's not until a few years later that he becomes convinced that the Pope is the Antichrist. He's not yet formulating clearly his idea about salvation by faith alone. And he's certainly not formulating the idea that Scripture is the only authority. All of that comes bit by bit. And what I find absolutely fascinating about Luther is that it comes in argument. It's as people contradict Luther that he starts to realise what his own positions are. And the most amazing example of that is in the Leipzig debate in 1519, when Eck manages to trap him into demanding communion wine for the laity as well as for the clergy. He's taking up some of the positions of Hus, which are known to be heretical, but Eck manages to trap him into that, 
And then Luther realizes that is what he thinks. So he becomes more radical as he argues. How much of Luther's views do you think come from his interpretation of the church around him and how much from his own personality and his own background? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Well, I would say that you can't really separate them. Luther is quite an extraordinary character. He clearly must have been very charismatic. People talk about these deep-set eyes, these these very um, piercing brown eyes. And he would have been an amazing friend to have. He could also be a dreadful enemy to have, too. I think a lot of it does come out of his own experience of the church, but a lot of it is to do with his own spirituality, too, because he's someone who suffers from what he calls Anfechtungen. We might sort of translate that maybe as tribulations or trials or temptations. And for Luther, they concern faith itself. They're not about celibacy. They're about what he calls the real knots. That is your relationship with God, whether you truly love God, whether you have faith. And Luther suffered from Anfechtungen his whole life long, so that his spirituality itself is very important in how the Reformation develops. Why do you think it was so many people were prepared to follow him, considering there would be quite a lot of danger for themselves in doing that? I think it's because his critique of the church seems in many ways unanswerable. It's because of the clarity with which he can bring ideas together. Luther has the intellectual gift of being able to put a name to things. And then I think that helps people to understand things in a new way. And he's using quite remarkable language. He's talking about freedom, and that's a very, very strong word. How atypical would Luther have been for a church? I mean, you said he's an extraordinary character. Would he have stood out from other churchmen of his time? Well, I think in many ways, yes, he would have. He's not completely unique. Um, Nobody in a particular historical period is. He's also a late developer. And when he publishes the 95 Theses, he's published virtually nothing else. So he comes on the scene quite late. He's not a young man. He's in his 30s and he gets married when he's over 40. And I think that what sets him apart is this extraordinary bravery. He describes himself as, uh, during the period leading up to Worms, as being like a blinkered horse, able to look neither to right nor to left, but just kind of sticking on this one path. And I think that that went with this sense of courage and purpose, which really was quite extraordinary. I suppose Luther didn't really have any inkling of the impact of his work. I mean, do you think he would have been happy with actually the extended Reformation that followed him? He's very funny. He he talks about what he feels about his own published works in a preface to them near the end of his life when the, his published works are, are first starting to be printed as a whole corpus of work. And in the introduction to that, he says, oh, it'd be better if all of this was was to disappear and be burnt and just forgotten about. All the Christian needs to read is the Bible. But at the same time, you can see that he also uh, sees some merit in publishing his collected works. But he always is someone who has a sense that what he's writing, although it's very powerful and full of the most extraordinary and often very musical rhetoric, he always has a sense that what's much more important is scripture. What kind of relationship did Luther have with other Christian reformers of this period? 
Well, that's one of the tragedies, and that is really the more difficult side of Luther's remarkable character. What you see time and again is these close personal relationships with his fellow workers that come unstuck and turn into really bitter enmities. And this happens with one of his first co-workers, Andreas Karlstadt. And as it's clear that they have different views about the pace of reform, they start to become very antagonistic to one another. And as Karlstadt becomes one of the first to argue that you shouldn't have images in churches and that the Eucharist is a memorial meal, not something where God is kind of really present in the elements of bread and wine, as Karlstadt starts to reject that kind of view, the opposition between him and Luther becomes unbridgeable, and that is tragic because that is one of the first divisions within the Reformation itself, and that goes on then to become the division that we now know as between Calvinists and Lutherans. And that's not just a doctrinal issue. There are a lot of personal things going on there as well. Could you tell us a little bit about Luther's personal life? Because I gather that that was quite unusual for Man of the Cloth. One of the most extraordinary things that Luther goes through is he's made a decision to become a monk once he makes his vow in the storm and he enters the Augustinians in Erfurt. Once he makes that decision, he's become a monk and he thinks he's going to lead a celibate life. But once he starts to believe that vows are wrong and that priests and monks are able to marry, then that means a complete change in his own personal life. And it actually takes him a long time because really by 1522, he'd worked out intellectually that you could marry and that you were not wrong to break a vow of chastity as a priest or a monk. But it still takes him three more years before he's actually willing to take the plunge himself. And I think that's very interesting. Another of the darker aspects of Luther's character was obviously his anti-Semitism. I mean, to what extent can we see that as fitting in with the rest of his theology? Unfortunately, I think that we can see it as fitting in. I found that deeply shocking and the most difficult part of writing on Luther. The anti-Semitism was much more extreme than I had expected, and it was also of a different sort. I knew that he'd advocated things like not allowing Jews to travel on the public highway, that their synagogue should be destroyed, their books burnt, that they should be forced to work. I knew that Luther had advocated that kind of thing. What I hadn't been prepared for was the kind of physical uh, revulsion that I find in one of the most awful of his tracts written at about the same time as some of these other things. And I found that deeply disturbing. I had to puzzle a lot about why it was that this anti-Semitism seemed to be such a part of Luther's theology. It doesn't seem to be to begin with. He does write this wonderful tract that Jesus Christ was born a Jew in which he does point out that it's the way that Christians treat Jews, that it makes it absolutely impossible for them to live in society. But I think what animates Luther is the feeling that his own church must be the chosen people of God. And that's the Jews' historic role. They are the chosen people. So he has to 
take away their role as the chosen people and claim it for his own church. How much of Christianity, or certainly Protestant Christianity, in the 500 years that followed, we really trace back to Luther himself as opposed to kind of more general sense of reform? Well, I think that Reformation is something that happens over a long period of time and has many different waves and elements within it. If you think of Luther's religiosity, he's not someone who's primarily a mystic, although he was influenced to begin with by the German theology and that whole mystical tradition. But in his mature theology, you don't find much mysticism. You don't find much of this idea about letting go, letting God enter you. But a hundred years later, that comes back in as pietism starts to reform Lutheranism and as it starts to bring back a much more emotional kind of element into spirituality. So I think that Reformation is something that takes on slightly different forms at different times. But what I do think is that Luther's personality and the tradition that he shaped leaves a huge influence on Protestantism of all stripes. Considering some of the more negative aspects of Luther's character, for example, his anti-Semitic views, do you think it's appropriate for people to celebrate him now 500 years after the start of the Reformation? I think it's really important to be open about him as a man and all his different aspects. I think also Luther helps us to debate how community might be opened up. One of the most fascinating things about Luther is that he insisted on the translation and publication of the Quran. And I think that is really inspiring and something that it's really helpful to think about. That's not to say that he was pro-Islam. He thought that the Quran was wrong and that if you published it, you could easily refute it. But that insistence that you have to know about other faiths and that you have to engage with them, I think that is something that is very much worth celebrating and I think it is absolutely essential if we're to understand the legacy of the Reformation that we think about Luther and about Lutheranism and the early Reformation in all its aspects. You wrote a biography of Luther which was published last summer. What new insights did you gain into his character from doing that research? It took me 12 years to do, which is a ridiculous amount of time. But I found Luther absolutely fascinating. And I guess one of the insights I gained was through reading his letters and his works and just looking at the kind of language that he used and looking at his relationships with other people. I think we often think about Luther as bringing about the Reformation on his own, but he didn't. He had very close friendships and also enmities. And I think these are really important in understanding the Reformation and seeing how it happened in Wittenberg, what the place was like, and seeing also the kind of background that he himself came from. We used to think that Luther came from a poor mining family and that his mother carried firewood on her back, as Luther says in one of the table talks. But we now know that, in fact, he came from a very well-off family and that his father was a smelter, that is, a mine owner. And that puts him in a very, very different social position. 
And once you think about that, I think, and about his own experience growing up where he lived down in the valley and the counts who ruled the area lived up on top of the hill and could literally look down on everything, then I think you understand Luther's political theology quite differently. No wonder he thought that power came from above. That was Lyndall Roper. You can listen to Luther's Reformation Gang on BBC iPlayer Radio. Lyndall's book, entitled Martin Luther, Renegade and Prophet, is available in both the UK and the US, published by Bodley Head and Deckel Edge, respectively. Meanwhile, you can read more about the Reformation in the May edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's issue, we have pieces on King Arthur, the attack on Guernica, England's first queen, and plenty more. You can get hold of our May edition in all good news agents in the UK and across the world in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. Plans to build a working replica of a medieval vessel known as the Newport Ship have been announced. The original timber frame trading vessel, thought to have sailed between Portugal and Britain in the 15th century, was unearthed on the banks of the River Usk 15 years ago in 2002. It was remarkably well-preserved and has since been on display to visitors in the Welsh town. The recreation is set to be a joint project between the Friends of the Newport Ship and Basque heritage body Albiola. Timber from the Basque region was used in the ship's construction. The chairman of Friends of the Newport Ship, Phil Cox, said, The original ship will never sail again, as it needs to stay in a climate-controlled environment. But a replica of what might have been would be great. It would take around a decade to complete, but we think it would be a magnificent sight to see the ship floating on the Usk once again. In other news, archaeologists are planning to excavate tennis courts in Bury St Edmunds in search of an Anglo-Saxon king. It is believed that the courts may conceal the remains of the 9th century ruler of East Anglia and later patron saint of England, St Edmund. Edmund is thought to have been killed by Vikings, after which his body was kept in a shrine in Bury St Edmunds. His remains were lost when the Benedictine Abbey was deconsecrated during Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries. Experts now believe that they may be located underneath the tennis courts, which sit on top of a former monk's graveyard in the abbey grounds. Plans to relocate the tennis courts and excavate the area are now being discussed. Just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are now on sale for our History Weekend events in Winchester and York, which are taking place from the 6th to 8th of October and the 24th to 26th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in popular history, including Michael Wood, Alison Weir, Dan Jones and Tracy Borman. You can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do join us next time when we'll be talking about Victorian food and the life of Henry VIII's sister. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. 
For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.